Good morning. My name is Linnea Gibbs, and this morning our scripture reading is from the book of Hebrews. Please follow along in your Bible or use the screens. I'll be reading Hebrews chapter 8 from the New American Standard Bible. Now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. A minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, so that it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since, those, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle. For see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. But now he, obtain, he has obtained a more excellent ministry, by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the hand the land of Egypt for they did not continue in my covenant and I did not care for them says the Lord for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days says the Lord I will put my laws in their minds and I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people and they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will know me from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. When he said, A new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning, Second Service. My name is Peter. I am one of the pastors here. Merry Christmas to you all. Um, we are in our series this morning in the book of Hebrews called Witness, and the subtitle is In Christ, In Culture, and today, especially on the fourth Sunday of Advent, uh, the word Advent means coming or appearing or arriving, and uh, I want to talk about this idea of Christ in me. What does it mean that Christ is in me? Uh, the first thought I had was about this idea of being an evangelical Christian. How many of you have heard this word before, evangelical? How many of you like to lead with this word when you're introducing yourself? <laughs> no? Nobody? Imagine, you know, hi, I'm Peter. I'm an evangelical Christian. I'd like to get to know you better. Will they speak? No. They're running. <laughs> because there's sort of baggage and there's stigma associated with this idea of evangelical. And uh, I want to propose that this idea of Christ in me is better. 
And I want to explain this to you. Uh, but first, um, a little bit of research. Lifeway Research Group, uh, based out of Nashville, Tennessee. I visited them. I know the guys there. They uh, put out this new research on Christ- in Christianity Today, the magazine, about what the word evangelical means. Now, there isn't one definition. Nobody knows what it means, really. But this is, uh, these are the top four things that they um, uh, found describe the term evangelical. And what I'd like you to do is tick off the ones that you feel you qualify for, okay? Uh, so number one is you believe the Bible is the highest authority for what I believe. Okay? Number two, it is very important for me personally to encourage non-Christians to trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. So you believe in the Bible. You also believe in evangelism. Number three, Jesus Christ's death on the cross is the only sacrifice that could remove the penalty of my sin. So you put your faith in Christ. Um, Number four, only those who trust in Jesus Christ alone as their Savior receive God's free gift of eternal salvation. And there's a kind of exclusivity that you believe uh, about Jesus. Now, um, the other little interesting things that the article concluded with was that 41% of self-identified evangelicals are actually not. They don't meet the criteria. They don't meet all four Uh, Number two, 21% of self-identified not-evangelicals are. They just don't like the word, apparently, like many of us in this room. (laughs) Number three, 23% of Catholics are evangelical. 47% of Protestants are evangelical. 46% of those who go to church are evangelical. So maybe about half of us here are uh, evangelical in the sense that we... Uh, meet those four criteria, criteria. And number five, education level is the greatest determining factor for whether somebody is an evangelical Christian or not. Now, guess way which, which direction that goes. The more educated you are, the, the less evangelical you are. We are part of a denomination, a larger group of churches uh, called the Evangelical Covenant Church. That's what we are, Evergreen Covenant Church and Evangelical Covenant Church. What do you think about that? Are you an evangelical Christian? I think, um, and along with the passage today and, uh, and some other references, we're going to see that really, according to Scripture, the test and the actual hope of being a follower of Jesus, being a part of this movement called Christianity, really is uh, centered around this concept, uh, revolves around this uh, central concept of Christ in me. For example, first, I mean, Colossians chapter 1, verse 25 says this, Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. What's he preaching about? That is, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints. Well, what is that? To whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery. What is that? Among the Gentiles, which is, here we go, Christ in you, 
the hope of glory. Beyond what you believe, beyond your worldview, beyond even your lifestyle, beyond your morality, beyond your external self, whatever identity markers you have set for yourselves, beyond all of these things, the actual only hope that you have, according to Scripture, is Christ in you. And the evangelical teaching on this idea of Christ in you is that you are a broken person. And when you are made whole, when God heals you, he heals you to be what you were meant to be, that is, a vessel, an empty vessel, designed and created by God to contain Christ. You're a flower pot, and your purpose in life is to have Christ in you. And this Christ in you is the hope of your glory, the the glory, the significance, the worth and the weight of what you are. The purpose of life for you is to be a home for Christ. This is what scripture teaches. And ultimately what matters is that Jesus actually lives in you. And the more he lives in you, the less you are increasing, you're decreasing. Just like what John the Baptist said, I must decrease and he must increase. That somehow when we try to be the container and the content, we're broken, we're messed up, things don't go well. But when we are able to empty ourselves, when the house is able to be made clean and Jesus fills that house, then you begin to live in a way you Never imagined before. This is the hope that you have. And this is what we're going to talk about today. This is the main point of what it means to be a Christian. Now, Hebrews, the author of Hebrews knows this. All from chapters 1 through 7, he's been setting us up for chapter 8. And so verse 1 in chapter 8 starts with, Now the main point in what has been said is this. And then he goes on to explain what his main point is. And the main point is the Spirit of God dwelling inside of you. That's it. That's the whole thing. All of everything we've talked about so far has been working to make this one point. That the point of life, the point of self, the point of reality for you is Christ in you. We understand from Hebrews chapter 7, chapter 6, and some in chapter 8 today that there are lots of cultural priests that we erect to help save us, to help us, to move us further along in life. But all these man-made priests that we erect can't get the job done. Things like religion, leadership, love, Food, art, music, governments, systems, rules, laws, culture, traditions, technology, science, psychology, superstition. Whatever it is you turn to as your priest to help mediate your salvation, they fall short. And actually, their purpose was to fall short to make a way for the one priest who will not fail. And the reason these other priests 
fail is because they can't get inside of you. And what chapter 8 teaches is that you can only be helped from within. If they can't really get inside, you cannot be helped by them. Because you are broken from within. Now, um, I don't know what you believe about yourself. I don't know how self-aware you are about the level and the extent to which you are fundamentally broken as a person. Maybe you believe you just need a little bit of help. Maybe you just need to be uh, managed better. Maybe you need a coach, or maybe you need some more information or education. Maybe you need a new thought or new relationship or a new job or more resources like money or time. What will help you? And the point we want to make today is nothing can help you save Christ in you. He will not fail you where others have failed. Uh, We have one point today, and that point is only Jesus. And if your point one is only Jesus, you can't have a point two, right? So we'll have one point, only Jesus, and then move on to application and conclusion. And some of you are going, why can't only Jesus be our point every week? Maybe. It should be. Only Jesus. We start with verse 7 through 9. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. So if the systems of this world, if the hopes that we turn to, if the priests that we erect, if they can get the job done, why would we even think about another one? But we do. For finding fault with them, he or God says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will erect, effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. The system is broken, and those who are working the system, they themselves are broken, and they don't know how to fix the system that's broken. They don't know how to fix themselves who are broken. Everything is broken. So how does help come? That's the question. And I want to now flip this from Scripture to our world. Can you think of a system or a discipline or a person or a uh, um, school of thought that you've encountered in life that you believe can fundamentally help you? It's your salvation. So, for example, like education. Is really what you're missing just more information? Is that what you need, new data? I just, I just need one more data point, and then I'll be good to go. We know education helps, but does it get the job done? What about technology? I think the iPhone 7S is it. I have my eyes set on iPhone 7S. I think that baby can save me. True or false? <laughs> what about uh, a new love in my life? Everybody got real quiet. (laughs) I mean, generally speaking, (laughs) love. If you have a new love in your life, will that help you? What about uh, food? Food helps. (laughs) 
What about other escape mechanisms? What can fundamentally be help to you? I was uh, reading this article. I read it a couple of weeks ago, but I've returned to it a few more times because the more I think about the content of this article, the more sort of intrigued I am by the thought. Uh, it's out of BBC. If you want to search for this article, search for Rise of Non-Binary Language. And that's what the title is, The Rise of Non-Binary Language in Our First World. And uh, it sort of goes into how uh, institutions like schools and workplaces are beginning to use more non-binary language. So it's not he or she. There's a whole spectrum of pronouns in the middle that now we employ. And now we're sort of like, it's culturally getting infused so that if you just say he or she, you're sort of an unsophisticated person. What are you, a binary person? You know, it's like, remember Bush used to always, President Bush always used to call things evil. We got to go get them evil people. People don't use that language as freely anymore. It's not just good and evil. There's a whole spectrum of language to be used in the middle. There are people who are hurting and people who are disenfranchised. Just a whole slew of language that's now part of societal norm to use this kind of language. Now, here's why this in article is interesting. The author, I forget who the author is, but you get the sense that there's a, a sort of an acknowledgement that non-binary language is sort of risen to the uh, fore in our culture. So that part is just matter of fact. It's just sort of reporting. But then there's a little bit of personal uh, edge or angle that they put in this article. And it sounds kind of cynical and a little bit annoyed. And you get the sense this author uh, is going... It's great that our society is progressing, I think. I think that it's more inclusive. I think that's helpful, I think. But then he, or I think it was a she, she's kind of annoyed going, really, you think non-binary language is our problem? Do you really think this is going to save humanity? Is this what's fundamentally wrong? Is this the help we need? You know, so you get a little flavor of the author's cynicism in this article. And I got to thinking about this, you know, non-binary language. I like that. You know, I'm a nuanced person. I was a literature major. I like being exact in my descriptions. I spend a lot of time thinking about word choice for my sermons, for example. But really, is that, is that what's missing in my life? It's the non-binary language-shaped hole in my heart. Ah, uh, but a lot of dentist friends for some reason, and I asked one of them recently, I said, tell me your top three horror stories. <laughs> it's a nasty job, folks. It is a nasty job. Ask your physician friends in this church. Ask them to tell you their top three horror stories. Ask teachers what it's like to deal with parents. Ask police officers what it's like to patrol the streets for crime. Ask lawyers, ask my sister, who's an, who's an attorney, what her horror stories are. Ask me, as somebody in ministry, what I've seen in the last 20 years of dealing with people. I was uh, listening to a story uh, this week, somebody, just a meeting, counseling meeting over lunch, and uh, they were sharing with me their childhood story. And this has happened to me maybe two or three times before in 20 years of ministry, but it happened again this week. 
I just couldn't take it. Somehow, it, the reality of their childhood and how broken and how painful it was, it connected. So for some reason, though the particulars of the story I couldn't relate to at all, but somehow it connected to some reservoir of pain in my own heart and life story, and I just began to weep uncontrollably. I was so embarrassed, but I couldn't stop. And every time I opened my mouth to try to talk, just more tears, and I just said, excuse me, and I just put my face in my hands, and I just wept. That happened on Thursday. There's so much pain. I was thinking back to another meeting, counseling meeting I had several years ago. Uh, The wife, she stood up, and she just yelled at me, like rage yelled at me for like five, six minutes. And I just sat there taking it. And then she sat down, she took a deep breath, and she said, I'm sorry. I don't know where that came from. And I thought, I know where that comes from. (laughs) We all have that. Have you heard a loved one's rage voice? You know what that sounds like? The agony of humanity, all of life's sins coming through, one person's wailing. When you live life long enough, you realize things are really filthy and it's nasty. I mean, talk to uh, somebody in the customer service industry during the holiday season. The human nature filth that they're having to put up with on a daily basis. It gets ugly really fast. And then the world is like, hey, here's some non-binary language to help you. It doesn't work. It's insufficient. There's fault in it. And with God, we find fault with our system, with our priest. It doesn't work. You have to know this. You have to know how broken we are. You know, people get mad at evangelicals. Oh, you believe in hell. And I think, don't you? You live in it. I, this is hell. If this was eternity, this is hell. I don't want to be here. How many of you believe the world is getting better? Don't raise your hands. How many of you believe the world is getting worse? It's not a pretty place out there. It really isn't. If you don't believe in the the nastiness of the world, consider your own heart. What are you capable of? What does your rage voice sound like? I'm telling you, you are somebody's horror story. There's some professional talking about you who lost all hope in humanity after dealing with your stuff. (laughs) Do you really think you can be helped from the outside in? No, really, think about that. You have to have lived life long and deep enough to have seen the ugly but true side of humanity. There must have been moments when you come to the conclusion, dear God, where do we find hope? Who can help? What's the hope of your glory? If we really are glorious because we are made in the image of God, how do we see? How do we glimpse the glory? And scripture says, it's Christ in me from within Um, 
Behold, days are coming. It's coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant. And if you are honest about your own heart and about your world, you will say with me, please, now, as soon as possible, effect a new covenant because the old one ain't working. With the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out from the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant and I did not care for them, says the Lord. That much we hopefully agree with by now. And then he says, this is the good news, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. There has never been a cultural priest that has been able to reunite orphan with father. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother saying, know the Lord for all will know me from within, from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Is it possible for you to experience true change and transformation on your own? Is it possible that some cultural priest out there can actually bridge the gap for you and heal you once and for all? When do you experience hope when you're frustrated with somebody you love? It could be a friend, a coworker, or a spouse, or a child, a relative, a parent. When do you experience hope? Grandparents, as you sit back and you watch your children's children growing up, and you have all this wisdom and perspective in your head, when do you know to have hope in your grandchild? And you just feel a certain confidence, they're going to be okay. I'm telling you, it's when you begin to see the spark of life in them. When they themselves, their self-centeredness, you see it diminishing. And you see them beginning to open their eyes to other people. When they begin to have new thoughts. Here's, here's the, um, the thing about the Christian gospel. It's not actually a judgmental religion. It's not a narrow-minded religion. It's actually very broad. In one broad stroke, it says nobody can help themselves. There's no hope to be found in anybody at all. Really, what we need is Christ in me. This is our only hope, the hope of having another person, the person of Jesus Christ, dwelling in us. This is mysterious. It's mystical. I don't fully understand what I mean by that, but that's the truth, that you believe that you have to decrease and Christ must increase. When you begin to see in somebody you love a sort of self, regular self-contradiction because they're not just answering to themselves anymore, but there's another Lord in their heart. 
there's a new law, a new sheriff in town. And you begin to feel the authority of a, a divine presence that's growing inside of a person. And when you see that, you say, ah, there it is. That's what hope looks like. All the years of you trying to change somebody, trying to get them to do what you think is better or wise, it hasn't worked. But then one day, for no apparent reason, you see the spark of Christ in them. A seed planted beginning to germinate. And you think, oh, my goodness, I think something just broke the surface. Um, Galatians chapter 2, verse 19 to 21 summarizes it beautifully. It says this, for through the law... I died to the law. And what Paul means by that is, I had all these systems erected. I had all these priests I put my hope in, including myself and my own education, because he was a very educated person. He says, all of those things, all they did was to show me that they cannot do what I was hoping they would do. They couldn't get inside. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. For I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. If you are here and you are a Christian, the question to you is, is Christ living in you or is it you still? It's a really, uh, I think, apropos question. It's not, it doesn't matter what you sign off on. It doesn't matter if you're like, I go to church and I believe the Bible. I do all these things. None of that matters. Because in the end, it's, your hope isn't external. It's not a thing that you control at all. But it's the indwelling presence and growing presence of Jesus in you. The decreasing of the self and the increasing of Christ. This mystical, mysterious, supernatural phenomenon. The cornerstone of Christian faith comes down to Christ in you, the hope of glory. Application points. I have two application points, but they're really kind of continuation uh, of, this, of the idea. The first is the question, is Christ in you? What's changing in you? What's happening inside? What's your heart like? You know, are you, are you critical or are you thankful? Are you humble or are you proud? Do you find your identity and worth in your works and your looks and your possessions and your things and accomplishments? Or do you feel a whole other orientation slowly happening inside of you? Who are you, really? Are you somebody who has Christ in you? Are you at a place where you're sort of like fatigued of yourself yet? I feel that way. This was a new work that God did in me this year. After 42 years, I'm finally a little bit tired of myself. <laughs> I kind of feel like, ah, gosh, Peter's agendas, his wishes, preferences. It's not all that awesome. It hasn't, it hasn't been quite the promised land I had hoped it would be. 
you know, and I'm kind of more interested in what other people are doing and what they're thinking. And I want to know, like, maybe God is smarter. Maybe there is life beyond, you know, my hopes and dreams for myself. Maybe submission and obeying and, and discipline, these are good things. Maybe self-denial and dying and being crucified with Christ and Christ living in me. Maybe that's good. Are you at that place? Are you, t- are you still really like keen on yourself? Like you're like awesome? Super excited about your own will? You trust your wisdom? You got it figured out? You're, you're able to predict your happiness you know, level like around the corner. You're like, if I only had this, I'm going to be great. Where are you? Is Christ living in you? Is he growing in you? Is he increasing? Are you decreasing? Ones you love, people who claim to be Christians, are they? You can be signing off on the four evangelical things. You can believe in the Bible. You can do, you could even be very evangelistic, share your faith. You can still be a jerk. Nobody likes you. Nobody sees light in you. You're just darkness to them. It's possible that you have bad character. You're sort of rotting from the inside out. So the outside looks okay, but inside you're rotting. This is what Jesus called his contemporary people who are religious, whitewashed tombstones. And if you're not a Christian, I want to ask you, uh, what is your hope? Do you deny that you're pretty messed up? Have you seen you deep within? Do you know that rage voice you have? Do you think your cultural priests, whatever you turn to for help and for identity and for security and hope for the future, do you think those things will be able to help you ultimately? Can you be helped from the outside? I think it's a fair question. Because there must have been times, moments when you said, dear God, what do I do now? What do we do now? How can we unravel this mess that is life and world and human history? If you're not a believer, what do you do? I think that's a fair question. Uh, A second way to think about this is our second application point. It's journey versus process. Uh, Journey, uh, for me, means it's just whatever's happening to you. You know, you get a flat tire, you got lost coming here, your car broke down, you got into a car accident, you got cancer, you lost a friend, you gained a friend, you got married, you got divorced, whatever. It's just life, the journey. It is what it is. But while your journey is happening, there's a whole other thing that Jesus is doing on a deeper level with that journey, and that's called process. It's what the scriptures call redemption or regeneration, sanctification. So you got cancer this year, but that's not the whole story for you anymore, is it, if you have a regenerating spirit inside of you? There's a work that's being done. I don't know how many times this year alone I was in a hospital room and I went there to be a ministering presence to give. But what ends up happening is I receive. Because while they're on this hospital bed, hurting and aching and on medication, you know what they feel on the inside? You know what God's doing? 
the process is joy and hope and character building. It's, they're sort of in this, what the um, Desert Fathers called a, a thin place. A thin place is where heaven and earth sort of meet. And they don't seem so boundaried anymore. You know, and they're sort of experiencing heaven on earth and hearing from God. And Christ in them is alive and well, even though they're on, an hos- they're on a hospital bed. And they end up speaking words to me that minister to me and give to me and give me strength and encouragement. Happens all the time. Because there's journey and then there's process. So a simple way to think about this is journey is answering the question, what happened? I got into a car accident. Process. But what's happening? What's God doing? So I would ask you, Your journey is your journey. It's what it is. But is God doing something with that? Is there a heart change in you? Is there something that you're able to finally see glimpses of over time? That's Christ in you. And if you are here and you're not a follower of Christ, then what's in you? That means you believe it's just you. It's you and karma. That's it. You know what karma is? You just get what you deserve. And I would ask you, what do you deserve? Really, what do you deserve? Not much. Not much. And so all you have left then is your journey. Just whatever happens to you is the end of your story. Your hospital bed is it. That's the whole story. What happened? I ended up in a hospital bed. What's happening? I'm still in the hospital bed. Let me close with Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 to 19. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. I don't know what you are experiencing or what you are praying this Christmas season, if anything at all, but this would be my prayer for all of us today, that we would be filled with all the fullness of God, that we would have Christ in us. May the Lord have mercy and never, never leave me to my own self and my own devices. May he always be an increasing presence, filling my cup, May I always be his vessel. And when you experience me, may you be experiencing the very presence of Christ himself. And I pray this for you as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Emmanuel, God with us, we look to you. Jesus, before you went away, you told your disciples, it is better that I go away because now I am with you. 
But after I go away, I will be in you. And I pray that for us, that you would be in us in increasing measure as we believe and as we nurture your residence in us. May we experience healing, anointing on our lives. May we be filled with love and kindness and truth and light. May we uh, experience glimpses of your glory being made manifest through us. We look to you this Christmas season and Advent. In Jesus' name, amen.